The word gospel means good news. How far does that gospel go? How good is the good news? Jesus said that with His coming, with the coming of the King, the kingdom itself was at hand. How far does that kingdom go? How far does the coming rule and realm of God reach? Does it stop with just the spiritual? His concerns come up to the edge of the barrier of Sunday and do not encroach to Monday. What is the gospel about? What does God care about? What would He have us to be about? That's a good question. glad you're asking it. Um, what, what does God care about? And what would He have us to be about? If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, this is the second in this little series uh, as we are in the process that we've been talking about this morning of the nomination of officers to elder and deacon and... Uh, we're coming back to that. We were looking at, at Ephesians 4, uh, talking about this topic and addressing some of the concerns there. Uh, I think that was, what, three weeks ago? Uh, and uh, we're, we're back to where we were supposed to be. I put that in quotation marks. Uh, last week, uh, Acts chapter 6. It's after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the four that we have. Uh, and then prior to the letters, we have the book of Acts. Um, as uh, Luke tells us, this is his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, was what Jesus began to do and to teach. Therein we know what the book of Acts is about, what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Um, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because... Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole group the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's, uh, let's pray for a moment. Uh, Lord, thank you for this historical document here inspired by the Holy Spirit so we, we know it's, it's not just Luke's perspective. Um, it's a whole lot more than that. Uh, we have here your inspired and errant authoritative word so we, we know that as far as its trustworthiness is concerned, we can stand on it as, as bedrock and it's not going to give way under our feet and at the same time it is authoritative and so we have to bow our heads and stand under it. 
And we ask that you'd help us to do that now uh, as we're, we're delving into the text and trying to understand what was going on then and its significance for us today. And, and I pray that, that this little short study in these few minutes that we have to, to look at this would, yes, would inform us as a church family as far as elders and deacons and nominations and responsibilities and duties and charges and qualifications and, and all of those things, but also help us to see beyond that to your goodness and your provision and your kindness and your mercy towards all of us as your children individually. Wherever we be uh, this morning, wherever the, the lightness or burdens of our hearts, we pray that you would meet that uh, in, in a way that only your spirit can. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is oftentimes said that variety is the spice of life. Yes, it can also be fuel for the fire. Uh, and you see that here in the first century church. You have two, two groups, two groups in the, in the Jerusalem church represented here as, uh, as Luke is telling us about here in Acts chapter 6. One group is described as the Hellenists. Now these are, are Christians, okay? They are Christians, they, they are Greek-thinking and Greek-speaking Christians. Their desire would be to build bridges to the Greek culture around them. Hellenists. Over here in this corner... We have the Hebrews. Now, these are also Christians. These are Jewish-thinking and Aramaic-speaking Christians, still part of the same Jerusalem church, that, but they have no desire to build bridges to that Greek world. They would much rather build barriers to tear those bridges down and keep it out. You see the potential for some conflict here? You see the possibilities of... Uh, some fur flying, well, that's exactly what happens. And uh, when, you, when you get to this point in the book of Acts, and you see several times in Acts 1 through 5, Luke has given us these summary uh, statements of, of great numbers that are being added slowly but surely uh, to the church. And by this point in the Jerusalem church, it's numbering the Christians there, the followers of Christ, confessing Him as Savior, are numbering in the thousands and they're not meeting in one place. They're meeting in multiple places, multiple homes all across the city. And likely, and you know how this works, how human beings are, likely Hellenists are meeting over here with this, you know, with their fellow Hellenists. And the Hebrews are meeting over here with their fellow Hebrews. And that's all fine, except that you could see how a problem could come about in the, in the daily distribution, in the mercy ministry, in the care for the widows, and even unintentionally, some overlooking taking place. And if that goes on with enough frequency over enough time, you're going to have trouble. And that's exactly what happens. And so the apostles recognize they've got a problem on their hands and it has to be addressed. Verses 1 and 2. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Now, I can't believe that that's all the thousands. It's got to be some representation thereof of, of what Luke means there. But And said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Here's my question, putting before the house. Why? Why was it not right? 
for the apostles to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And by that, they don't mean, you know, putting the napkin over the arm and a plate and that kind of thing, moving around the restaurant. They're referring to administrative duties. That's what it means to serve tables. Why would it, was it not right for them to give up preaching the word of God to tend to, to put their attention towards administration in, in the church? Was it because it was beneath them? No. Was it because such responsibilities and such duties and such needs were unimportant? No. It was actually precisely because it was so important and their charge duties of the preaching of the Word of God was so important that they recognized something had to change. The status quo could not be maintained. The gospel is something that is meant to address all of life. It is meant to be expressed in word and in deed. It has to be declared. It must be demonstrated. And that is being threatened here in the course of these events. And so what you see here in Acts 6, I I would argue, is... Now, you don't see the word deacon. I know that. But what you do see is the prototype of the deacon. You see something of the need of it being expressed and showing itself here in the the er, events of the early church. You see the priority... Uh, of, of the need, you see the principles as to how that's, they're meant to carry out their duties, and certainly, I would again say, the precedent of the, the diaconal office. Now, I also recognize you don't see elders rec- uh, represented here, but I think you can see something of elder-like duties in the way the apostles respond to the need. So I would make the case that we can learn something both about the charge, the duty, the responsibilities, the qualifications, all those things, of both elder and deacon here in this passage, sort of in a prototypical kind of way. A pattern is being set here that that we would do well to learn from. Or put it another way, because of the nature of gospel ministry and its fullness, word and deed, declaring and demonstrating, because of the nature of gospel ministry, a local church has to pursue both the ministry of word and deed because of the very nature of gospel ministry, of what it is, of how full it is, of how three-dimensional it is, or even I could say four-dimensional it is. A local church has to pursue both the ministry of the Word and the ministry of deeds. Let's look at this just for a few minutes together. First, the ministry of the Word. The gospel is meant to be declared, spoken, taught. I was going to say prot, preached. What is English is weird, isn't it? Anyway. Uh, you see great resistance. And you know, what's, what's interesting as, as a principle, I think that that's worth thinking about here for a moment, is sometimes you can discover the significance and, an, and the importance of a thing by the pushback and the resistance against it. And you see resistance to the ministry of the Word, to the declaration of the Word here, starting from within, from within the ranks. Um, you know, Christian maturity is a struggle. It doesn't happen overnight. Those of you who have been a Christian more than a day, probably, well, no, you're still deluded. Um, a month. <laughs> a, a month. Um, uh, recognize something of it. And, and we see, you get a glimmer of that when you read between the lines in the implied, uncharitable assumptions made by the Hellenists towards the Hebrews and likely up the, you know, to the apostles themselves. Why, why don't you, you know, kind of you know, barking and 
snarking and whatnot going on there. And, okay, so resistance from within, but not just that. There's something deeper and darker and uglier. There's a plot afoot here behind the scenes, and it's traced all the way back to Genesis 3 and the hostility and a war that was declared, an enmity that was created. This is something satanic at work here. The enemy, Satan, um, from the earliest days of the church, was trying to destroy it. He's tried, this is the third phase. The first phase, I'm going to try and undo it through persecution. Well, that failed. Well, now I'm going to try and undo it and destroy it through corruption, Ananias and Sapphira. Read about that. Well, that, that didn't work. Now I'm going to try a different tack. I'm going to come at it from another way. Not persecution, not corruption, distraction. I'm going to get the leaders off their focus. I'm going to get them doing many good things, but losing sight of what they're called to be and to do. Well, all that resistance, I would say, points to the importance of the ministry itself, as do the requirements. You know, it's not, it's not just the case that the resistance against something points us towards the importance and significance of that thing, but also the requirements of those who are to serve in that role point us towards the importance and the significance of a thing. In this case, I would say the prototypical elder here and what you see of what the apostles are saying about themselves. They're fully devoted to this. Look at verses 3 and 4. Therefore, brothers, give up, excuse me, pick out, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This is a, a single-minded fidelity to one thing, this devotion to the Word and to prayer. Why? Why? So that this fledgling young movement, that you, the church, would be protected, would be nurtured, would be, as I just said, protected against all the hostility and the plots and plans and schemes of the enemy Full devotion, and not just that, full dependence on the Lord. The preaching of the Word and prayer. Without prayer, the seed of the Word will bear no fruit. And so they are fully devoted and fully dependent all at the same time. And that's the pattern of the apostles, and I would say again, it's the might say the, is to be the pattern of the elder and is showing us the importance and the significance of the ministry of the Word. It is so important, it is so significant that a new office had to be created for its sake. In this case, the, the office of the deacon. And the fact remains, and is still today, that it is very tempting for pastors and elders to get their focus off to lose sight of this primary calling, the ministry of the Word. J.I. Packer writes, I constantly maintain that if today's quest for renewal is not along with its other concerns, a quest for true preaching, it will prove shallow and barren. John Stott wrote, If today's pastors were to take seriously the New Testament emphasis on the priority of preaching and teaching, not only would they find it extremely fulfilling themselves, but also 
it would undoubtedly have a very wholesome effect on the church. Instead, tragic to relate, many are essentially administrators whose symbols of ministry are the office rather than the study and the telephone cell phone rather than the Bible. Those are hard words, and they're needed. They're needed. Um, the word is vital. The ministry of the word is, is vital. We see it here. It has to be pursued. It has to be protected. It was so vital and from the earliest days. We see the creation of the office of the diaconate. How does this come to bear in a church that is in the process of nominating elders and deacons? I want to just suggest one thing. As you're praying and thinking and talking about this through, ask this question about the person that you have in mind. Are they convinced, whether it's an elder or a deacon as your nominee, are they convinced of the absolute vital nature of the ministry of the Word of God in a local church? Do they see its value and worth? They have to. They have to for the sake of the church. That's the first point, the ministry of the Word. Secondly, the ministry of deeds. The gospel is a message that has to be declared. It is also a message that has to be, by extension, demonstrated. And you cannot have one without the other. And again, as I said in the last point, I just want to make the second point in the same way, using the same principle, same argument. Sometimes you can see the significance and importance of a thing by the resistance and the pushback that it receives. And you see resistance and pushback here. And again, from within. Um, offense is taken. It's a sensitive issue. People's britches are all bunched up. A solution is come up with, which is rather interesting. It's hard to pick out this out in the English, but I, I want to point this out to you. The solution is very creative. It's beautiful. The seven men that are chosen are all Hellenists. They're all Greek names. The apostles are so wise to, to deal with it in that way. Well, so there's, a, there's resistance of taken from within. It comes from within the ranks. And again, I want to say that it's, it's something as a plot afoot. There's something that smells of sulfur in the air of what's going on here. The enemy is, is at work. There's a lion, and, and the lion that wants to devour. It's, 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 I don't even know if the word ironic is the right word to use here, but I, I will try and use it. It is ironic that a collection that was meant to um, hmm, express and also uh, bring, express the unity of the church and also, you might even say, foster the unity of the church that collection is the very thing that is now threatening to destroy it. This is the screw tape letters in living color. But the Lord is greater. There is a greater lion. We read of his response in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, again, I would make the case that sometimes you can tell the significance and importance of a thing by the resistance that it receives. 
equally so by the requirements of those who have to serve in these capacities. And we see something of that again here, of course, so explicitly here in what the apostles say uh, and how Luke describes these seven men. Uh, you, you know, they, they didn't take out one ads. They didn't get on monster.com and say, deacons needed. Call if interested. Oh, that'll go well, right? Um, no, of course, that's silly, but not even the first century equivalent did they do anything like that. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Um, the, uh, their qualifications are what they are. And you can read of the qualifications elsewhere, of course, as well. In 1 Timothy 3, you read about the qualifications of the deacon, also the qualifications of the elder, and then the qualifications of the elder also in Titus 1. But... These qualifications, as you find here in Acts 6, just that quick summary, tell you something of the level of responsibility these men are going to have. And the sensitivity of the situations that down the road that they're going to face. And again, those requirements point to the importance and significance of the office and the ministry that they're going to be engaged in. These requirements... Uh, you also see something else, and that would be the fact that they are ordained by the leadership. Verse 6, these, after the list of names, these, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So this is not just a casual thing. This laying on of hands, you see that in the Old Testament, and, in, and you carry it over into the New Testament as well. It has always meant a conveying of something, a, a transferral of, of something. In this case, the blessing of the apostles on these men, uh, the, the commissioning for a task, the authorization that they're giving for these men to do their task, if you will, cutting them loose in a way. But that's let me also explain that the deacons are authorized agents of the elders. The elders are to understand themselves to be shepherds, overseers, Guiding, providing, protecting the flock of God, which he bought at the cost of his own blood. As we read in Acts 20, Paul to the Ephesian elders. The deacons are under, understand themselves to be authorized agents, free to carry out the tasks that the elders have given them to carry out. Not to understand themselves as executives, but nor to understand themselves to be gophers. They are representatives of the elders, assisting the elders and tasks that the elders have given them, charged them to carry out, with authority delegated by the elders to carry those tasks out. I'm just trying to stress this point. The ministry of deeds is vital, just as much as the ministry of the Word. You cannot have one without the other and have a healthy church. You cannot. And again, that is why the apostles were saying why it wasn't right. Why it wasn't right to give this up for the sake of that, not because one was unimportant and the other was, because both were so important. That was the point. So again, I would say in terms of as we're thinking about this as a church and trying to wrestle this through and, and praying through this and talking about this and approaching men about this, we've got to ask this question. 
like you know, similar to before. Are they convinced of this? Are they convinced of not just the absolute necessity of the ministry of the word, but the absolute necessity of the ministry of deeds? Of fleshing that gospel out, not just talking about it, but putting flesh on it. Are they absolutely convinced of that, and do they value it such that they will give themselves to it? Again, this is why, I, I know I'm repeating myself, but this is why the apostles said it was not right that they should give up the preaching of the Word of God to serve as they you know, meant tables. Both were vital. Both were significant. These are the things. This is what I started with. This is what we started with a few minutes ago. These are the things God cares about. The declaration and demonstration of the gospel. One without the other is an incomplete picture. I'll try and illustrate this in two ways, wrapping this up. First, somewhat light. Bear with me. Some of you may be, I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with the fact that Leonard Nimoy died this past week. Leonard Nimoy, of course, is most well-known for his role for years as Mr. Spock in the Star Trek uh, TV series and then uh, films. Uh, Spock, in case you're from, I was going to say, Vulcan. <laughs> Mars, I don't know. Um, in, in case you don't know, Spock was this character. He's half human, half Vulcan. And as a consequence of that, one of the interesting things about his character is he's constantly finding himself being torn between his emotional feelings and his rational logic. That's what makes him a very interesting character. So I'm going to show my trectum here. By, by saying, so, okay, so there, there are some of the old classic episodes, like, say, I'm going to name them, The Naked Time, or All Our Yesterdays. Yes, I know the titles. Um, you know, where Spock is just, is his emotional side, his human side is coming out as he's giving himself to the love of a woman. And at the same time, other episodes, Galileo 7, Journey to Babel, the, the, Vulcan, rational, logical, clinical, cold, calculating side is coming out as he's trying to weigh how to process this in the logical, rational way. The point being, there is a point. He's a complex guy. You take one without the other, and you're not really talking about that character. You're talking about a caricature. You've got an incomplete picture when you talk about one side or the other. Now, okay, caricatures. Let's run with that for a minute. You know what caricatures are, right? I mean, sometimes they're fun. You go to the, the, the fair. You go to the, the carnival, and you sit down, or, or you know, some street uh, festival of some kind. And there are artists, right? You can sit down, you pay them some money, and they'll sketch you out. And, and you know, usually you've got a really big head and a little body, and they're emphasizing certain parts of the person's face. Or, and, of course, presidents have that honor done to them. It's been the case for years, you know, and I'm just off the top of my head, you know, uh, Carter, right, Jimmy Carter with the lips. That was the way, of course, they were always the, the thing that was projected out there. And, and uh, Ronald Reagan with the wrinkles, right? He looked like a human raisin. And, and Bill Clinton with the nose and Barack Obama with, with the ears. I mean, it's always this, you know, boom, this, you know, one part of the body where really being, you could say, emphasized, or maybe you could say everything else is being de-emphasized. I don't know. But either way, a caricature is at best a two-dimensional representation. It's flat, right, of something that's much bigger 
And in this case, it's warped. It's intentionally warped, like these, these caricatures. What I'm trying to get at is this. I think sometimes when it comes to the gospel ministry and when it really looks like we have a caricature, at best a two-dimensional flat understanding of what gospel ministry is, when it's actually three-dimensional, full-orbed, it's two things, these two things yoked together, and you cannot have one without the other. And I know we as Presbyterians tend towards one, the head, the teaching. My friends, that is a caricature. That is dead orthodoxy without orthoproxy. You, we must have, we must pray for him, we must strive for him, we must plead with the Lord that the ministry of the Word and the ministry of deeds together, together. Because you cannot have one without the other without them both being real and authentic. How do we know this? We know this because of the clear commands in Scripture. We know this because of Jesus' own example in His earthly ministry of preaching, yes, and healing, and is also giving us these offices. Elder and deacon. The ministry of the Word and the ministry of deeds. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you that we are not left to guess about what your priorities and your desires for us are. And we're not left to make up out of whole cloth what a local church is supposed to be and to do. And you and your sovereign grace have shown yourself to be the good shepherd and the suffering servant and the bishop and the overseer of the church. We ask that you, in this moment in space and in time, would raise up the men that you have appointed for these tasks from this local congregation to serve in these capacities. Show us through the process, we pray. Guide us through the process, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen.